you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. From the Moan Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, movie theaters across the country are closing their doors. Can exhibition survive the coronavirus pandemic? Then Amy Ryan stars in Lost Girls. It's a film that takes a different approach to a true crime story about a string of murders of women on Long Island. We're not following the serial killer and trying to figure out him. We're following the women and what they went through. And that was that was new, which is also shocking. And 50 years ago, the Beatles won a Grammy for Abbey Road. You'll never guess the category. That's Today in the Frame. We'll be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. The mayors of Los Angeles and New York have ordered movie theaters in their respective cities to close their doors, and that follows a decision by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that public events attracting more than 50 people be called off for the next eight weeks. That means hundreds of concerts, plays, and other live performances have been canceled or postponed. But could the coronavirus pandemic bring about permanent change to the movie business? Lucas Shaw covers entertainment and media for Bloomberg. Lucas, welcome back to the show. John, it's great to be here. So two things happened over the weekend. One is the box office was the worst in more than two decades. The second is that the Walt Disney Company put its sequel Frozen 2 on its streaming service, Disney Plus, three months ahead of time. I got to think those two events are not totally unrelated. What's your take? Yeah, this seems like a, a savvy move by Disney, at least as far as Frozen goes, with no live sports on TV to watch, with no movies in theaters, people are stuck at home and they want to watch. And if you have one of your most successful movies in recent memory in Frozen 2 and you can offer it at home, uh, it means more people are going to sign up for your very new streaming service, more people are going to watch it, and they're going to consider that over, over alternatives. You know, Disney continues to do a really tremendous job of marketing this new streaming service. It seems like for theater owners, they have two fundamental problems. One is... They're being either asked to close their doors or they can't have full houses. And the second is that the studios are not distributing content. The new James Bond movie has been pulled. Mulan has been pulled. The sequel to A Quiet Place has been pulled. The next Fast and Furious movie has been pulled. So even if theaters are somehow able to stay open, pretty soon they're going to run out of new movies, aren't they? Yeah, it feels like a matter of time before movie theaters close. I mean, when you have bars and restaurants closing across the across Los Angeles and, and potentially across the country. Why is it that, that movie theaters are exempt? It's not entirely clear. And, and to your point, there, there just won't be much for them to show. Every major release that's due out over the next couple months has been shelled, postponed. I'll be curious whether this leads to any long-term change in the way people go to 
to the movies. You know, I've talked to a bunch of business analysts over the past few days, and they have been comparing what's going to happen over the next few weeks and, and months to the economic recession in, in 2008, which is when you saw certain industries that were already trending in one direction, that trend accelerated. So the most common example they used was newspaper advertising, uh, which was already going down, and then it, it just disappeared during that recession. Now, I don't know that you're going to see movie going disappear. I don't know that you're going to see cord cutting in mass, but you probably will see certain trends that we've seen in society that we're already setting in accelerate because now you have a lot of people who are contained to their homes and many of whom won't be getting paychecks over the next several weeks. Well, and I think the trend was pretty clear even before the coronavirus pandemic started. The Motion Picture Association of America releases its annual report early in the year. And according to the report that came out just as the coronavirus was spreading, it Admissions to North American theaters were at an all-time low, down 5% from the previous year. Per capita admissions were also down significantly. And at the same time, the U.S. digital market was up 18% last year, while box office was down 4%. I think you can see the writing already before any of the real problems started happening, that movie theaters were struggling to attract patrons, and they were only able to make money because they were charging higher ticket prices. Yeah, and you, you brought up Frozen 2 at, at the outset and what that means. There's been some speculation online, you know, would a major movie studio release one of these movies that they've postponed online right now? Would Disney take Mulan and choose to release it on the internet? Would Paramount take A Quiet Place 2? That's unlikely because of how much money they have invested in that theatrical experience, but it's not crazy to think about anymore because if you look across the entertainment industry, you now have so many high quality movies or at least movies with big names available for home right away you know and even disney which has been the staunchest opponent of condensing what are called windows that gap between when a movie appears in theater and is available at home is going to be making movies exclusively for disney plus so you're going to have so many movies that you that are pretty good that you can watch at home that you will only go to the theater for that very special project i also want to ask you about tv and about sports. So I got up this morning, my kids, because there's no sports, were watching Germany play Brazil in a World Cup game from 2014. If you haven't seen it, it's a great game. You should watch it. But as people stay home and are trying to watch television, there's no live sports anymore. What is going to be the fallout from that problem? The crunch will be temporary, I'd imagine there. I mean, in the, in the meantime, we have a bit of a sports desert. You know, I had a, I had a friend who messaged me last night who was watching live marble racing. Now, I don't know what would possess somebody to watch marble racing, but then I opened up my Twitter app this morning and somebody else was tweeting about marble racing. So I guess this is going to be a thing that people do over the next few weeks. There will be no major live sporting events for at least a month. That means March Madness doesn't happen. The NBA playoffs don't happen until the summer. The Major League Baseball season doesn't happen until the summer. That leaves a huge hole on TV network schedules that they will have to fill with programming like reruns of old sporting matches, reruns of old TV shows. I hesitate to say that this will be a, a you know a long-term problem once it is deemed safe again to go to sporting events or at least to play sporting events. There's likely to be pent-up demand. Uh, and so in the meantime, I think there'll be a lot of sports documentaries and a lot of old sporting events. And so I'm glad that, that your son wants to watch old soccer matches. I don't know how many people will, but Maybe they'll, they'll go to marble racing. Lucas Shaw covers entertainment and media for Bloomberg. Lucas, thanks for coming on the show. Stay healthy and safe. You too. Thanks, John. 
Right after I spoke with Lucas, NBC Universal said it would make its films currently in theaters, including The Hunt and Invisible Man, available for streaming as soon as March 20th. And Universal's April release, Trolls World Tour, will be available for streaming the same day it arrives in theaters. Coming up next on The Frame, Amy Ryan stars in a movie about something on every parent's mind these days, looking out for your kids. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Lost Girls is a new movie from director Liz Garbus. While the filmmaker is best known for documentaries, her new movie is a fictional drama, but it is inspired by a true story. Amy Ryan plays Mary Gilbert, whose daughter Shannon went missing about 10 years ago. More than a year later, her body was found on Jones Beach Island in New York. Shannon was an aspiring actress and had worked as a prostitute. Lost Girls suggests the police treated her disappearance, like several other sex workers who were murdered around the same time and place, with indifference. In the film, Ryan's character tries to get the authorities to take her daughter's case seriously and consider whether a serial killer is on the loose. It was actually the search for Shannon that led police to the discovery of several more bodies. We reached Amy Ryan on Skype at home with their family, and I asked her what it's like to be an actor right now, with productions and movie theaters shutting down over concerns about the spread of COVID-19. Man, it's, it's like one of the first times as an actor, I'm thrilled I don't have a job, you know. Um, and my husband is a writer, so we both work freelance, so we have um, the luxury of being home at this moment together, which feels comforting. Um, but, you know, uh, but it's still, it's still unnerving, but we, you know, I'm also trying to keep it fun in the house for my 10 year old. So we've got some puzzles and games out and trying to do stuff like that and watching some movies, comedies. And, but I should be totally honest, just making it up every day. And I keep doing weird things. Like I keep <laughs> I keep cleaning the house, but in weird places. Like I mean, I'm wiping down doorknobs, but I'm suddenly I'm like, oh, I need to organize these paper clips, or you know, it's like trying to have some kind of control. I guess I understand that. I think what you and I are talking about is what it means to be a parent and to try to protect, and sometimes be unable to protect or worry about your kids, and that really goes to the heart of Lost Girls. I want to quote a line from the book that the film is based on by Robert Kolker. The book is called Lost Girls, an Unsolved American Mystery. Robert Kolker writes this, a missing girl is missing only to the people who notice. Mm. Yeah. Pretty much what this film is about, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, you know, this is the story of, um, as you say, uh, starts off with um, Shannon Gilbert, who is the daughter of Um, Mary Gilbert that I play. And when she went missing almost 10 years ago, uh, because she was in the sex trade industry, I think the thought was, well, these are 
disposable people or they probably wanted to go missing anyway. They didn't want to be found. Like, why would we spend our money looking for them and our resources? Um, and I think it also speaks to not only the women in the sex industry, but a lower economic scale, like who gets the attention of the media and the, and the police and, you know, and such. So what our film also does is start to demand accountability, the character Mary Gilbert, and to make sure that these women are not forgotten. And also that they're referred to as mothers, sisters, and daughters, and not hookers and prostitutes. Again, like, a, you know, a sensationalized version of them. She brings a lot of humanity back to them. Well, it's funny you use those words, because I'm going to play a clip from the film where I think your character uses those words. What about our girls? Who's talking about them? And when they do, it's prostitute, hooker, sex worker, escort, never friend, sister, mother, daughter. They don't care. They blame them. I'm curious when you first heard about this story and what part of it appealed to you as an actor and as a parent? Well, I remember this when it happened in the news. That's around the time my daughter was born. So any, you know, when, once you become a parent, I'm sure you've experienced this too, that all the parent worst nightmare stories that are out there suddenly come like in bold letters across, you know, your your screen or your newspaper and they're highlighted um, in a very dramatic way. So I remember this then. And then when the script came, um, be, having been familiar with the story, but not necessarily um, in terms of Mary Gilbert and the direction that the script goes and and how wonderfully the script, what, what attracted me to it was that it follows the women. It, it's not taking the time for like a police whodunit and what kind of a person would do this to women. Like we're not following the serial killer and trying to figure out him. We're following the women um, and and what they went through. And that was that was new, which is also shocking. <laughs> it's like, oh, let's this is a good way to tell a story. <laughs> and your director, Liz Garbus, makes a couple of interesting choices. And one of them is that the film does not spend any time really examining what she did before she went missing. It is not interested for kind of, I guess, prurient reasons going into Shannon Gilbert's life as a sex worker, because that seems irrelevant to the story she's trying to tell. 100%. 100%. And anything else would just feel, you know, like some weird form of titillation. And, um, and you're right. It shouldn't matter if she was a sex worker or uh, a lawyer. You know, um, the fact that um, she was ignored. I mean, that young girl had a 23-minute 911 phone call that they took over an hour to come get her to. I mean, you know, she was clearly in distress. Um, Also, by the way, this phone call, uh, the Suffolk County Police Department refuses to release it, and they've been court-ordered to do so, and they still have not done it. It's very strange. Um, So again, like, you know, there's still a lot of, um, you know, disregard happening even 10 years later. We're talking with Amy Ryan about her new movie, Lost Girls. I think it is oddly coincidental 
that this film is coming out the same week that Harvey Weinstein was sentenced to 23 years in prison because this is a story about how women were failed and how they weren't believed. And people Mm -hmm. didn't think that what they were saying mattered. And I wonder if you think there's a bigger story here about people that we don't want to believe, we don't want to listen to, and how hard it is for them to be heard and say this has happened and something needs to be done about it. Oh, I think, I mean, you know, hallelujah, Harvey Weinstein, 23 years. I mean, it really, it, it, you know, it, it, feels, it, it feels like it's been turning slowly, but that is really going to embolden, uh, I hope, women to keep speaking up and speaking out and um, that progress can be made. I feel hopeful. I feel really hopeful for that. Besides its importance as a story, Lost Girls also represents something that is increasingly rare, and that is a lead role for an actor who is female, who is maybe older than 35. And <laughs> Maybe. Okay. I was trying to aim low, but, uh, yeah. but it no, does. No, me too. I'm a, I'm a proud 51-year-old. Okay. Uh, but there it is. But those kinds of parts don't come around very often. Is that part of why you were so interested in playing this? Can I tell you something? I have been told, you know, I, I found more success when I was 38, like when I was nominated for an Oscar. And everyone's like, oh, you know, two more years, you know, it's 40. It's over for women at 40. And I worked more past like 45 than I did at 25. And, you know, um, that now that said, I do see my male counterpart friends, you know, that I came up with in New York doing maybe eight movies to my two. There's definitely a difference, but, um, but I have not, I've been very lucky and, and very satisfied to, to play, um, you know, well, just keep working at, at my age. Um, but I, again, I feel like that's going to change. It's changing slowly. I mean, you have these amazing women like Reese Witherspoon finding content and, you know, for women, about women. And um, I think more and more will follow. A movie like Lost Girls is a narrative film about true events, and a documentary can tell one version of that story. A narrative film can tell a different version of that story, but both can leave the audience thinking about things in a different way. And I'm curious if you think there is some takeaway that you want audiences to have after they see Lost Girls. Well, yeah, um, I hope a few things. One, I hope women who are dismissed and ignored just get louder, like Mary Gilbert did. And I also hope that this film drums up so much attention that some internet sleuthing can happen and and uh, this case gets solved. And someone, someone who knows someone who knows someone <laughs> must know something. And um, I'm hoping, you know, new evidence appears. And, uh, and there's new, you know, there's a new regime now at Suffolk County Police Department when, from when this case first happened. And so maybe there's a new order there that uh, is interested in it as well. And um, if there can be closure for this family, that would just be remarkable. I'd be so happy for them. And I would be happy to know I was part of um, a piece of art that moved things, shifted situations. Amy Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
Thank you. And stay well sanitized. Be safe. Coming up on The Frame, 50 years ago, the Beatles won a Grammy for Abbey Road, and it wasn't for Album of the Year. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. 50 years ago at the 1970 Grammy Awards, the Beatles acclaimed Abbey Road was up for Album of the Year. But it didn't win the big prize. That went to Blood, Sweat, and Tears. The only Grammy for Abbey Road was for engineering. The Frame contributor Tim Grieving recently visited with the assistant engineer on those sessions, John Kurlander, who incredibly was only 18 years old at the time. I started at Abbey Road when I was 16. I was working with Jeff Amrick, who's the, the main Beatles engineer, and he started when he was 16. One of the main points that I feel ab- about the Abbey Road album is it's basically engineered and mixed by children. <laughs> I would help with the setup. I'd be a total assistant to Jeff, and I would run the tape machines, which was no mean thing. I mean, it was a... a a lot of work to do and a lot of potentially dangerous work to do because the stereotapes were on open spools. And if you spooled it too quickly or too carelessly, the whole tape could spool up into the air and destroy itself, which we tried not to do with the Beatles recordings. They wanted to improve on the previous albums, but once they'd recorded a song, they wanted to improve on the next song. So each song that was finished, the next one had to be better than that. And they were constantly moving forward and wanting to do stuff technically that had not been done before. Yeah, one of the things we did um, quite often on the Abbey Road album was we put tea cloths over all of Ringo's drums on the toms and the snare. Um, and that, again, was something I don't think had been that widely done before. One thing I can tell you is you got to be free. <laughs> Crickets from the EMI sound effects library. <laughs> they used to enjoy dipping into the, the the sound effects library was not actually a library it was a a big um cupboard with filled with old tapes uh, that had been made in the 50s and 60s and they used to enjoy unlocking that cupboard and saying what can we what we can we get so the other thing that was brand new for them was um shortly after the, getting into the sessions that summer um, they got a Moog synthesizer, which was, I think, the first time any of us at EMI had seen it. And the Beatles hadn't seen it before. And um, it was put, it had to be set up in a separate room. Uh, and it was, we had cables to connect it to the control room just running through the corridor. 
Paul lived the closest to the studios. He lived about five minutes walk from the studios. So um, he said, I'm going to come in every day about half an hour before everyone else gets here. And we're going to do a take or maybe two takes of the vocal for Oh Darling. So he would do that. He came about 12.30 at lunchtime, sing it once or twice, and then leave it. And I said, don't you want to hear it? No, we don't need to hear it. And he did that every day for about a week or so. We had all these short pieces that were eventually to be joined together. And then one day Paul said, okay, we're going to do a rough mix and we're going to join it all together. And here it's supposed to be a medley. And right in the middle of it, between me and Mr. Mustard and Polythene Pound, was Her Majesty's, which had been cross-faded. And when we played it through, it kind of slowed down the momentum of the medley. And by this time, it was about two o'clock in the morning and I'd been doing all the editing. Paul said, just get rid of it. And he left. I thought, I can't just leave this thing lying on the floor. So basically, I picked it up off the floor. I put it at the end after about 15, 16 seconds of red leader tape. And I actually put on the box, Her Majesty's at the end of the side, not wanted. And the next morning, they cut a reference lacquer of it at Apple. And Malcolm Davis, who was a cutting engineer, looked at my notes and says, well, I'll just leave it on as well. John left it on, I'll leave it on. So the next lunchtime, the guys came in and Paul said, okay, so last night we joined the medley together and we're going to play it through. And we played it through and, you know, have the big build-up to the end of the album and beautiful harmony ending of the end. And there was like this big sigh and everybody started really in silence. They didn't really know what to say and the just about as they were about to comment on it this Her Majesty's track comes crashing in Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl but she doesn't have a lot to say Paul just loved the way this thing crashed in randomly for no reason at all and said keep it I want to tell her that I love her a lot but I gotta get a belly full of wine Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl someday I'm gonna make a mine oh yeah someday I'm gonna make a mine And that is all for today. But just a note before we go, we have paused our spring member drive so we can bring you NPR and KPCC's uninterrupted coverage of the pandemic. But we can't really pause the need for member support, which remains our most critical source of funding. So please help us to get to our $1 million goal and donate now at kpcc.org or call 866-888-5722. Thanks for listening and for your support. I'm John Horn. Stay safe and healthy. We're back here tomorrow at the Moan Broadcast Center. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. 
Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water deal maker, wherever you get podcasts.